Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. So this evening, uh, in week 17 of our series on the spiritual gospel, on the gospel of John, we're going to go in a bit of a different direction. Um, In fact, we're going to go into uh, a mini sermon series, if you will, that's a part of this larger sermon series. In particular, as we looked at uh, last week, Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000, this week we are going to be spending some time thinking about Jesus and his walking on the water. In Matthew and Mark and in the book of John, these miracles appear in close proximity to one another. There's a feeding miracle that happens and then Jesus walks on the water. And I would imagine that for many of us, again, if we have any sort of background within the church, this is a story that is known to us. I'm gonna take us in three very different directions than I believe you have heard this story taught. And tonight, I'm gonna need you guys to buckle up, okay? Now, as much as I I, I want to encourage your participation, I want to encourage your amens, I want to encourage your get on it, preach it, go for it, I want to encourage a little give and take from you and me, okay? I'll be up here singing and dancing and I would like to encourage you guys to, to respond. However, tonight, the audience that I'm looking to get riled up this evening, the audience that I'm looking to get some of that praise going on, is the audience that loves, loves, and is moved by ancient Near Eastern background and context. If you love the Hebrew language, this is for you, friends. And if you love the the, just thinking about the Hebrew language and how it was at one point adapted and translated into a known language that other people would have been speaking like Greek. I'm telling you guys, this is going to be your night. So just get ready for the amen chorus to happen and for you guys to be coming back at me here because we're going to talk about three weeks on the ancient Near Eastern context or the background in which we need to have to understand John's retelling of Jesus walking on water. Okay, and this one, I'm going to lead us out into the wilderness as we, as it were, but I'm going to bring us back and try to help us understand what this story is all about. So this evening, our main text is going to be from the book of Exodus chapter three. This is a story that is well known to you. I'm not going to read through the first 15 verses, though that will be our focus for this evening. Instead, I'm going to read some of the story and then comment along the way. I'm hopeful that as we hear this story again of Moses and his prophetic call, if you will, that we will be able to understand something, many things perhaps, that is true about ourselves and our own relationship 
with God, but I'm also hopeful that this will propel us into a surprising and meaningful retelling of Jesus walking on water. You guys with me? Okay. Exodus chapter three, beginning in verse one, it says, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, before we can do anything with this story, we need to understand the background because what we have here is adult Moses. This is adult Moses, and in the background is the first couple chapters of the book of Exodus where we have met little baby Moses. We have God's people, Israel, in, in Egypt. They are growing and multiplying so much so that the Egyptian royalty says, we've got to do something about these Israelites because they are beginning to outnumber us. What we need to do is put them to work. We need to make sure that they are enslaved. We need to make sure that they are doing all of our building projects. And any Israelite boy that is born, we need to kill them. They entrusted this task into the hands of capable midwives who, when they would see a baby boy being born, they would execute the baby boy in order to make Israel small and not threatening to the powers that be. And for the church folks in the crowd, this is the story that you know where Moses's mom takes baby Moses and puts him in that little ark. It's actually the same word that's used for the ark in Genesis chapter six, side note. Moses is placed in this ark of salvation and placed into the river uh, where he floats away and is eventually rescued by Pharaoh's daughter and is raised in the house of Pharaoh, basically as an Egyptian. And he thus staves off his own death. As an adult, it says Moses goes out and he sees his people. It doesn't really describe how he knows that the Israelites are his people, but he sees these people that are in uh, servitude and slavery, and one is being beaten by a taskmaster, and Moses cannot take it anymore, and he executes the taskmaster. We see this chain of events where Moses and his, his violent uh, outworking upon this individual forces him to flee the country for the, um, the possible uh, execution of his father towards him. And Moses ends up in Midian. He finds a wife. He has kids. And here Moses is tending the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro. Moses is leading the sheep in the wilderness. The job of a shepherd in this time is to find where grass grows so that sheep can have something to feed on. And Moses is taking these sheep to new territory, perhaps, where he might not know where he is heading or he might know uh, in, in a turn, he might know a pasture somewhere that's hidden that he can take these sheep it says there on Horeb, on the mountain of God, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. I know I've used this, this anecdote before, but I think that the the biblical authors just make Moses into this really crazy person. He sees this bush that's burning. I think I will go and check that out. 
Like the way that they describe this, it just seems very, very proper, very appropriate. Moses thinks to himself, I'm going to go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. A lot of commentators make arguments that within the wilderness, within the desert, a, a bush on fire or a tree on fire or some sort of shrubbery on fire would not necessarily be that odd because of the dryness and because of the heat. If there's a, a lightning that, that strikes, that might potentially catch fire. But Moses is going to see why this bush is not being consumed by the fire. One scholar says, I like to imagine Moses reflecting over coming years that he would have saved himself much trouble if he had simply thought, that bush is weird, must get on to find some grass though. Like Moses is not engaging this. And as Moses is sitting around the fire, perhaps wandering out in the wilderness to his death without going into the promised land thinking, I guess I just shouldn't have gone over there. That was a mistake. But here, here we all are. Another scholar says, in order to understand this passage, and I'm going to prepare you guys for this, because this is going to put us into some tricky territory, but you guys look like an audience who likes tricky and controversial territory. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Okay, so we're going to give you some honest stuff this evening, and we're going to try to dissect it and, and attempt to make sense of it. But one Jewish scholar named James Kugel, he taught at Harvard for a long time, he says, in order to understand this passage, Moses going to the burning bush to see and to encounter God, it is well to remember that its God is not the God of later biblical times. A God who is omnipresent, a God who is omniscient. Those are big fancy words. It means a God who is present everywhere all at once, or a God who is omniscient, a God who knows everything, past, present, and future. This is not the God that Abraham, or excuse me, that Moses is encountering at the bush. This is not the God that is being recorded in the book of Exodus here. It's not the God of later biblical times, the one who is omnipresent, omniscient, this deity. Instead, this is the God of old. Such a God dwells in a certain spot. This God is localized to a certain point in time and space. This is why the tabernacle was so important. That's where God lived. This is why the temple was so important, because that is where God lived. This is why the Ark of the Covenant was so important, because that symbolized the very presence of God. In our mindset, we think about God as this omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent God. But these are later categories of theologians who are looking back, attempting to describe who God is. But in our Bibles, and this is the controversial point, okay? Don't you love it how I tell you what's controversial? Just so you guys can stick with me. This is the controversial point. The Bible is a book that's embedded in culture and God reveals himself in a way that makes sense to the people at the time that he is revealing himself. So for example, when we look to Genesis 1 and we hear this creation text, I didn't plan this, but here we go. Let's just go for it. Let's have some fun. In Genesis 1, we have the story of creation. It makes sense in the ancient Near Eastern culture because this is how people understood the cosmos. This is how people understood the world and its origins. It would have been totally weird for God or the Holy Spirit to whisper into the authors of Scripture, hey, let me tell you something. Let me just catch you up to speed on science real quick. So we're going to find these things called telescopes, and we're going to find these things out in the, in the space, and we're going to send up some satellites, and you guys can just see all this really cool stuff. It wouldn't be proper or appropriate for God to give them knowledge that they would not have in the history of humanity for some 3,000 years. 
God reveals himself in a way that makes sense to the people at that time. And here's the really good part. He does the same thing for us today. He does not reveal himself in a way that would communicate to an ancient audience, nor does he reveal himself in a way that would communicate to a future audience. If my sci-fi fans want to wrap their brains around that, what the world's going to look like in 3,000 or 4,000 or 5,000 CE, I have no idea. God communicates to us in ways that make sense here and now, and what Kugel is saying is, in order to understand the story of Moses meeting God at the burning bush, we have to respect that. You're not going to like this. But it's almost as though we have truth in the sense of this absolute, timeless truth versus context. Because what we have in the Bible is teaching and revelation that's based on context. And I thought this was really clever. Watch it. Okay, go ahead. This is really cool. It's almost as if what we have in the Bible is contextual truth, where the way that God is revealing himself to the people makes sense to them in that moment, because that is the context in which he is appearing to his people. This is demonstrated most beautifully in the Son of God, who is called the exact representation of God, the very imprint of his finger, who shows up as a first century Jew, distanced from our culture and our context. Now, where am I going with this? You might be saying, I don't know, but we're going to get there together. Uh, one scholar again says, the God I read about in the Bible is not what God is like in some timeless abstraction, and that's that, but how God was imagined and then reimagined by ancient people of faith living in real times and places. And if this quote gets your juices flowing, then come hang out with us in April because we're reading this book and we can discuss it maybe at specific gravity in the back half as we're playing shuffleboard and talking about big theological concepts. Doesn't that sound like fun? Okay. So what he's saying here is that God is revealing himself in a way that, that makes sense at that time. And I have one example of this. For example, and, and this fits within our context, the gods of the story of of Exodus. So after Moses shows up and he eventually goes back to free the people from Egyptian slavery and servitude, we launch into these 10 plagues. And for many of us, we just think these plagues are some random happenings that show God's might and God's power. However, that's not exactly the case here in this story. This story is a polemic where God is dismantling the power of the gods in Egypt systematically one by one. So when Moses and Aaron show up in the first plague that they do is they turn the Nile into a, a river of blood. For an ancient people in Egypt, this was the very source of life. And for an ancient people, they would have had a God that was dedicated to the Nile, specifically to the overflowing of the banks of the Nile that would bring irrigation to the plants, that would allow plants to grow. These ancient Egyptian people would say, this is our God, Hopi. This is our God, the one who oversees the flooding of the Nile. And for Moses and Aaron to, to do this miracle on behalf of God where the Nile turns into blood, it was God saying, Hopi ain't got nothing on me. 
In the second plague, the one of frogs that show up all over the place, there was another Egyptian goddess who was the goddess of fertility, also important. You have water, you have childbirth and fertility, and the goddess of fertility in the Egyptian context was called Hecate, and Hecate was uh, identified by a head that was shaped as a frog's head. These are not just party tricks. These are gods systematically taking the gods of Egypt and doing away with them. In the ninth plague, we have God bringing about complete and utter darkness, whereas God is is taking the Egyptian god Ra, the one who oversees the sun, and saying, you have nothing on me. I'm in charge here. And in the tenth and final plague, we have um, the deity Osiris, who is the Egyptian god of death, And Yahweh is the one who does away with his power and his rule because in that tenth and final plague, the firstborn Egyptians all die at the hands of God. Now, if you can see this, what you you have to understand is in this passage, for ancient audiences, they would have understood that these gods were not just figments of the Egyptians' imaginations. They would have understood these gods as actual, real gods. And Yahweh, or the God of Israel, was just more powerful than they were. We have this, this text in the Bible which demonstrates an ancient way of thinking that shows us something that they believe to be true about their God. Our God is better than any other God. It wasn't that other gods did not exist for the ancient mindset. It was that their God was better and more powerful and one who was not to be messed with. And in this passage, what we have is the localization of a deity in this bush and Moses going to see this. This is communicating to an ancient audience where he's expecting or or potentially going to see and experience the divine who was speaking to him in this moment. Okay, so what we have here in this passage is an ancient uh, audience understanding what God is, is attempting to reveal about himself. In verse 4 it says, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, that is, when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look at this bush, God called to him from within the bush saying, Moses, Moses, and Moses says, here I am. Do not come any closer, God says. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this moment, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Moses has been gone for a long time. Moses, we are unsure what sort of training and what sort of upbringing he would have had with regard to the faith of Israel. A a side note that I didn't tell you, when Moses was was being raised in Pharaoh's household, it was actually Moses' mom who was called to be his wet nurse. And in this context, she could have potentially been with her own son for three or four or five years, teaching him covertly the stories of, of the faith teaching him about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Perhaps this is something that propelled him to care for the Israelites who were being persecuted in Egypt. But we don't know exactly what's going on here, but we do know that God is revealing himself saying, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. This one's just for the super church people. You ever been to a youth group and you've seen the the super passionate and holy worship leaders who before they go up on stage, they just kick their shoes off? and they go play a worship set in in their bare feet. 
holy ground. That's just a little, little jokes for the overly Christian folks. Um, but here, there is potentially something for, for Moses to encounter a holy God and to respect this space where God is revealing himself to Moses in this place and in this time. And the Lord goes on to say, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. Another way that an ancient people would understand God. God is somewhere out there, and God God comes down in order to meet the needs of his people. I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and the mosquito bites. Thank you, Brandon. Nice. Little pastoral humor there. Nope. Okay. He goes on to say, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. God says, I have seen, and I have heard, and I have come down to rescue. Israel's cry has reached me. This is a God of justice who is no longer standing by as his people suffer. He is no longer going to be complicit and silent. He is going to engage. He has seen. He has heard. He is going down to do something about this atrocity, about this enslavement, about this persecution. God cares about his people. This, this goes back to Exodus chapter 2 at the end of the chapter where it says during that long period, this is when... Um, Moses is, is leaving and going out into uh, to Midian. He finds a wife and starts a family. During that long period, the king of Egypt, it says, dies. The Israelites groan in their slavery and they cry out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. The people and the, the situations that they were going through, it did not look like the covenant anymore. And they were calling God to task saying, it's time you do something about this. Because what's happening is not emblematic of the covenant. It's not emblematic of the promises that you said. It's not emblematic of the relationship that you claim to have with us. Do something about it. He remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. The text says, so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Literally, it says, God looked upon the sons or the children of Israel and God knew. He hears, he sees, and he knows. Friends, this one is too easy. This is like a pastoral softball when you're looking at this passage in the same way. Whatever it is that you're struggling through in your life, God sees, God hears, God knows. And I would like to submit that God also remembers the promise. He remembers the covenant. He remembers what he has claimed to do for you. We sing about, I know who he says I am, I think is the line. And we hold God accountable to those things when everything is hitting the fan. And this passage in Exodus chapter 2 and this passage that we'll see now in Exodus chapter 3, it's just poignant and pregnant with meaning. God sees and God cares and God hears and God will come down and God knows. 
In verse 10, it says, so now go. God's not splitting open the heavens and showing up and saying, so I'm going to take care of it. Instead, he's saying, I see, I hear, I'm concerned. I'm going to give you a good land. I'm going to take you out of this place of oppression. But Moses, my man, Moses, it's your job. So now you go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. Scholars would refer to this as Moses' calling. And remember, Moses has had it good. He's in Midian. The cares of the past are gone. He's not worried about the enslaved Israelites anymore. He's got his wife to look after. He's got his kids to look after. He's got his, his father-in-law's sheep to look after. He's just trouncing out into the wilderness with the sheep, maybe getting a couple hours away from the missus and just having a nice time with nature. Sees a weird bush on fire and says, huh, I'm going to go check that out. And everything gets upended because God is asking him to go back to the place, to the site of suffering and persecution and injustice. God is asking Moses to risk something. God is asking Moses to go after his people and to help them. And just like us, Moses begins to make excuses. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Within chapter uh, uh, Exodus 3 and 4, we see Moses begin to just fight this call, saying, I don't want to go pick somebody else. It's not on me. I just want to shepherd these sheep and take them around and find the little grassy spots. And I don't want to do anything. The injustices that are happening back home, I don't want to do anything about that. I just want to be comfortable over here. I don't want to actually have to risk anything for someone. I'd rather just be over here with my wife and my kids playing travel soccer and hanging out on the weekends and going to birthday parties. I don't want to do anything. What God says to Moses in response to his self-doubt and his self-deception and his disbelief in what he could do, or just the fact that he doesn't want to engage in any of that, what God says is, I will be with you. Moses, all the fears that you have about Pharaoh and his power, all the fears that you have about going back home and maybe meeting up with your brother, all the fears that you have about going back and, and being an agent of reconciliation and hope and change, God says, I will be with you. And that is no different than what God says to us today, I will be with you when you stick your neck out for people. I will be with you when you care about those on the margins. I will be with you when you give your life and your time and your finances to the poor and the widowed and the orphaned and the broken. I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought this people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. This is a weird passage for scholars. They don't quite know what to do with it. But God is, is debunking Moses' first call, who am I? God says, well, whoever you are, you got me with you. So even if you're a big fat, I was going to say this. I'm, I guess I'll go to now. So even if you're a big fat nobody, you've got God with you. That's not very pastoral though, because I don't think Moses is a big fat nobody. But here it doesn't matter. The point is, Moses, I got you. Whatever I call you to, I will be with you in that fight. 
And Moses says to God, suppose that I go, and he's really just piling on here, suppose that I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and then they ask me, what's his name? What am I going to tell them? Again, scholars have postulated maybe Moses doesn't know who he's dealing with here. He's been gone from Israel or from, from the Israelite faith community for a long time. Maybe he's just forgotten. I don't know if you guys remember all the things that, that you were taught from ages zero to five. But maybe he's just forgotten, but much more likely he's just trying to get out of this. Who am I going to tell them is, is bringing me here? Who am I going to tell them is, is on their side? What's his name? And this, friends, is where we have led you. God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Okay, just, just, from, a, just from a straightforward reading, that makes no sense. Moses says, who are you? I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am that I am. I will create what I create. I will cause to be what I will cause to be. Scholars have no idea what this means. In Hebrew, eh, yeah, asher, ah, yeah. We don't know. <laughs> it means something like, I am who I am, but people have really struggled with what this means all the way down to one scholar saying that a good representation of this passage would be, what does it matter to you who I am? Pete Enns goes on to say, in this sense, in, in this uh, who does it matter that I am, the I am who I am can be understood as a near refusal to dignify Moses' questions with an answer. Moses says, if I go, God, who am I going to tell them has sent me here? And God responds, I am who I am. They know very well who I am. Don't ask me dumb questions, Moses. A better way of understanding this, however is to look at, at, at the structure of these words and, and what they might come from. So here we have, eh, yeah, asher, eh, yeah. You'll have to trust me because most of you don't know Hebrew, Brandon, I can't vouch for you, but um, eh, yeah, asher, eh, yeah. It's a verb, and it comes from the root, hayah. And what people have postulated here is that this has something to do with being, Again, it says, eh, yeah, has sent me to you. This is the name, I am, has sent me to you. I am, or I will be who I will be. The I am is sending me to you, is what Moses should say. Carol Meyer says, perhaps more important than the actual translation is the fact that the name eh, yeah, seems to be some sort of uh, form of the verb to be or to become from hayah. And thus, it asserts God's existence. It asserts God's identity as one who brings about existence and perhaps even God's mystery as the one who is whatever the one is. Another scholar says Yahweh is a God who will be there, who will be with them, who will be whatever it is necessary to be in different contexts to achieve that purpose announced to the ancestors. And again, it says the force is not simply that God is or that God is present, but that God God will be faithfully God for them. Wherever God is being God, God will be the kind of God God is. 
wrap your brains around that. It's about faithfulness. It's about presence. It's about loyalty. When he says, I am who I am, he is saying, I will be with you. Moses, that's what you need to know. That is my very name, the name I am. I will be your God. I will be present for you in whatever it is that you face. Moses, you have all these doubts. You have all these reasons why you can't do what I'm asking you to do. Random churchgoer, you have all these reasons why you can't do What God is asking you to do and what you're failing to see is that the same God who calls himself the great I am, who shows up for Moses as I will be with you, is the same God who is with you today to empower you to do the work that he's calling you to do. Whether it's helping with the homeless, whether it's reaching the people on the margins, whether it's reconciling relationships that are broken, whether it's showing up at Evo, to drink a beer and to sing a hymn so that somebody on the other side might remember whatever it is that God is calling you to do, just like with Moses, he will be with you. And this is the whole point of what this passage is saying. When Moses says, who who am I gonna tell him sent me? God says, I am and I will be. Now, this is where it gets fun. Because in the Greek, friends, at one point, right, Hebrew wasn't good enough because people stopped speaking Hebrew. So, eh, yeah, asher, eh, yeah, didn't mean much because people had been influenced. They'd been Hellenized by Alexander the Great, and everybody was speaking Greek now because of the, the empire that had gone through, and everyone was being instructed in a different language. So at some point, the sacred text of the Old Testament had to be updated, had to be translated. You guys aren't picking up what I'm putting down for you, are you? God's revelation is continuing for these people. He's not staying in a dead language. Instead, he is updating the language so the people can understand where he's going and what he's doing. And here we have the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. I still don't think that one's landed for you, but tuck it away. And in a few days, when you're like, okay, Come have coffee with me, and we'll talk about that. But here in the Greek text, the way that they translate eh, yeah, asher, eh, yeah, the I will be who I will be, or the I am who I am, the way that they translate this is ego, a me. Say it with me. Ego, a me. It means I am. The Greek translation actually goes beyond this to say, like, I am the one who has being. It's, it's, it's been... Uh, I don't want us to get lost in this, but it's, it's been updated for the Greek culture and context. The Greek philosophy was sort of um, influencing how this passage was being translated. But I really just want to camp out with that first little bit there. Ego, a me, I am. This is the Greek translation of this passage in Exodus chapter 3. Friends, I just want to pat you on the back because we've done some work here today. All right? This brings us all to John chapter 6. When evening came... This is after Jesus has fed the 5,000. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. This makes it, it's even more clear in Matthew and Mark what's going on here. Jesus sending his people ahead of him. 
So his disciples are out on the boat, and it says in verse 18, a strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, if memory serves, I believe um, that this is a 12 by 7 mile uh, body of water. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. They were frightened. They were afraid. This wasn't something they had a context for. But Jesus says to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. This is a perfectly, perfectly good translation of this passage. It is I. It's Jesus. Remember me? I just fed a bunch of people. You know me. I've taught you a bunch of things. Let me in the boat, you crazies. But also, he says to them, it is I. He says to them, Ego, a me. He says to them, eh yeah, asher, eh yeah. He says to them the things that his dad has said to Moses in the midst of his fear to communicate who he was. He uses, in a sense, the same name that God uses for himself back in Exodus chapter 3 to say, I will be with you. He says to them, I am. He says to them, don't be afraid. I am with you. The word of God for the people of God. Darn right. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that we know you and that we know your son who according to John is, is this exact representation of you in the same way that you identify yourself to Moses, your son has identified himself to his disciples in the same way that you announce presence and witness and promise. Your son in the midst of his friend's most terrifying moments communicates in similar language. God, whatever it is that we are in the midst of here and now, may we too hear those time-honored words. Eh, yeah, I share, eh, yeah. May we hear those words, ego, eh, me. May we hear those words, I am, I always have been, I always will be and I am with you. God, for those moments when we have not trusted, for those moments where we have let fear consume, remind us in this moment as you communicate to us in a way that we can understand that you not only care in some detached way, but you are intimately involved in the goings on of our lives, that you are with us in the struggles, in the brokenness, that you are a God who feels and experiences along with us and that we can trust you to comfort us in our most terrifying moments by helping us to remember that you are with us. God, we're thankful for your word and we're thankful for its depth and we're thankful that we can jump around and get all sweaty and think about all of the cool connections that we see in this text that hopefully apply to us
today. We are humbled and we are thankful. We pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.